This is All People Are Crazy, a reverent discussions on how to cope with being a perfectly normal crazy person. These conversations are to nudge your curiosity about mental health, fill in any gaps in your knowledge, and encourage you to make the difficult deal of taking your own advice. This podcast series includes adult concepts, explicit language, discussions of mental health, mental illness, suicide, trauma, violence, drugs, and sex, but generally not all at the same time. Please be gentle with yourself and remember to seek support if you need it, starting with family and friends, your general practitioner, and in Australia Lifeline from 13, 11, 14. Welcome to All People Are Crazy. I'm Lisa Downs and I'm joined by Australian psychologist and my friend of 23 years, Tom Lothian. Hello, Tom. Hello, Lisa Downs. How are you today? I'm good, thank you. It's Friday, so I'm absolutely fabulous. Shouldn't say that, that absolutely time marks the uh, day that we're recording this. Anyway, last week uh, we talked about why we were doing this podcast and we covered off a little bit on phobias. Um, And the thing I took out of this, like the main gist was we were all made as cavemen, there was so much cavemen chat, uh, but... Whilst so a lot of our fears were sort of created there to protect us initially, but uh, some of these are less useful to our lives these days, but we can train ourselves out of some of the fears that are having a negative impact on our lives. Is that about right, Tom? That is a very tight summary. You're absolutely correct. Excellent. So many cavemen. Uh, and spiders. Uh, so if you uh, do have a fear of spiders, uh, maybe read yeah, Refresh that episode <laughs> and fix yourself spontaneously without ever calling say, me or any or of my colleagues. <laughs> chicken or egg, which should you do first? Listen to that episode or go and read something else before you listen to that episode. <laughs> <laughs> so today we're taking just a little step back and we're actually going back to the start um, and we're discussing all things therapy and specifically what is therapy and how can you get the most out of your therapy sessions should you choose down to go to go down this path um now just a reminder i'm going to keep popping these in at the start of our podcasts (laughs) tom is not giving personal medical advice all of this advice is general in nature and you should seek professional support for your own individual circumstances and in australia start with your general practitioner tom's insurance will be happy that's very tight yes thank you (laughs) the good people at aon say thank you they are not in any way sponsoring this in fact i gave them several hundred dollars like last week (laughs) (laughs) okay so tom why do we even need to chat about this because i feel like therapy is just self-explanatory and like i feel like you're projecting work onto me as the client in order to get the most out of this so isn't it like the therapist's job is it your job to fix me if i'm the client that is an amazing softball, Dorothy Dixer. Thank you, Lisa. That is sensational. Although, it's weirdly enough, it actually, I don't know, aren't you just? Uh, otherwise, it's just me talking to myself. And let's be honest, that's what crazy people do. Uh, and not the fun kind either. Like everyone's a fun kind of crazy. And that's what I aspire to drive everybody back to. Uh, not crazy, not an option available. Uh, fun crazy, preferable. A problematic crazy is what I do for a living. Uh, I tell you, So lots and lots of clients will come to see me for the first time. And if they've never seen a therapist before, 
then their assumption, whether they realize it or not, is going to be that it's like seeing your general practitioner, right? Like that's a healthcare professional that almost everybody's had quite a lot of contact with, at least in the Australian system. Uh, and when you see a GP, it's a good deal because they will tell you what's wrong with you and then they'll give you a pill or a bandage and then you're fixed and you're done and you can roll on with your day. And that is... Yeah, it's great. It's a really good relationship and blessed be the GPs for getting that business done. Uh, and that is not what therapy is at all. Even though I like totally turn up in a collared shirt and suit pants that as long as I'm not on Zoom, in which case I'm wearing jeans because you can't see below my waist anyway. Uh, and I look a bit GP-ish. I look enough like a professional. I went to school forever as well. But I can't fix anybody. So one of the kind of introductory things I always talk about in my first sessions with any client uh, is what is their expectations of therapy and what role do they think I'm going to play? So I, I did drop one of my two controversial statements from therapy in the last episode, which is that there are no psychics. And the reason I say that is not explicitly to defame psychics, although I'm not terribly concerned about that. Uh, it's more to point out that nobody possesses magic mental healing powers that can force feelings of well-being into another person against their will. And that would be great, to be honest. I would totally train in that if that was a thing uh, where I just, whatever, wiggle my fingers or twiddle my toes, tap my shoes together three times, and then people feel better. But it's not a concept that meaningfully exists. Everybody's trying to fix this. Everyone's trying to figure it out. Uh, my profession has been working on that question for 150 years. No one has succeeded. Several people have claimed to, and all of them turned out to be crazy cult leaders in the end. Uh, and all of the things that were meant to fix people from the outside turned out to do more damage than good. And all of them have been stopped to a really large <laughs> degree. So, shout out to lobotomy guy, uh, insulin coma therapy guy. Uh, yeah, there's like a lot of really bad stuff happened because people thought that they could force well-being into the brains of others so instead therapy is a space where folks come they talk about what the problems are and they talk about what they should do about it and they talk about why they're not taking care of themselves and then they work their way through all the things that aren't helpful until they do the helpful thing until they take their own advice and my job is to sit still be quiet say as little as humanly possible and encourage people to take their own best advice and point out to them when they're not. And through the most obvious hard work available, uh, people will fix themselves while I watch and clap occasionally. So my major metaphor for therapy is it's like training for a marathon and everybody knows how to train for a marathon. It's left foot, right foot, repeat. The hard bit isn't being clever about how to put one foot in front of the other. It's being prepared to do it and going slow enough that you don't break yourself, uh, but doing enough of it that you actually get fitter and you can go the distance. And you know what else I think about this is that um, if you are part of the creation of the solution, then you are more likely to stick with that solution. So, for example, I know that I should give up coffee for my stomach. 
right? But <laughs> if you took coffee away from me, Tom, if you came in and said, Lisa, I am banning you from coffee, I would spend every minute of my day thinking about how I could undermine you and, like, get the coffee back into my life. And Or otherwise I would just sit here, like, squirming away, hating on you. Um, and that wouldn't be a Beautiful. good solution. And I would try to <laughs> overcome the thing that you've taken away from me. Whereas if I decide yes. myself and you say, you know, you sort of ask me some very yeah. pointed questions about, well, why is it that you yeah. want to give up coffee and why do you think this would make you feel better and what would you do when you yeah. are feeling better, <laughs> then I might think, oh, well, this all yeah. seems like I'm making very bad life choices continually uh, yeah. for myself and I Excellent. might have more ownership about, like, solving that. Yeah. So I feel like being part of the solution is sometimes really great as far as what therapy helps you do, Yeah. Absolutely. And I, I think it touches your, your wonderful example, touches on a really important point, which is <laughs> that the therapist should week, be week. made. Okay, <laughs> Sorry, great. That's, that's excellent. Well, that's, that's good because I'm coming to your place to take all of your supply because that seems like the most sustainable way to achieve this. Uh, I'm not. We live a long way apart. Um, the therapist should be made redundant as quickly as is humanly possible. I mean, one of my kind of mantras for folks who are thinking about like how much therapy to do or what they're going to work on is do as much as you need to and do as little as is humanly possible that really there are better ways to spend an hour than talking to me. Like go and have fun or do some work or engage with your friends and family. That's vastly preferable unless you really need it. And if you really need it, it's there. It's available. We don't have as many psychologists as we kind of need to meet demand in the current market in Australia. And that's fine. Like that's that's part of the challenge of, of getting help and, and using it. Um, but equally, if you can do this off your own bat, importantly, see yourself not only as the expert in your own head, because remember, there are no psychics, ain't nobody else in there with you, uh, but also as the leader within therapy. Even though I'm the one in the collared shirt, I'm not the one who's going to make the difference. Do I think therapy is useful? Absolutely. But a therapist by themselves doesn't actually make any difference at all, right? If a therapist sits in the woods and say, nobody feels the good vibes, <laughs> damn straight there is. If a therapist sits in the woods and nobody hears the good vibes, does anyone really feel better? And the answer is no, right? Because again, that would be me like pumping out great psychic vibes. And I'm totally open to believing in that. <laughs> If anyone can show me any evidence that it works whatsoever, I know I'm now going to receive like a torrent of emails <laughs> just full of magical thinking. And look, I never you... thought that this uh, yeah. session would be the themes would be like for this whole podcast would be cavemen and, and magical thinking. <laughs> I'll just, just wait. We haven't even touched on the other controversial statement in therapy. I've referenced it twice now. I haven't gone there. I'm just going to leave it as a teaser as well. It'll come when it's relevant. Um, yeah. So basically hearing that therapy is a space where the relationship is the intervention, right? The relationship is the thing that makes the difference. So having a space where somebody will require very little of you, right? Because being a therapist is to be selfless. During that time, we require very little of our clients other than to pay 
and to cancel with notice, right? Like that's the deal. It's a mercenary relationship. I turn up and I love my job. I can't emphasize enough how much I love my job, particularly having come from accounting, which was fine, but I did not love it anywhere near as much as the job that I do now. And so I do get a lot of the good vibes and the good feels out of being a clinician, out of being a therapist. Uh, But also I get paid for it. And I I mean, to my mind, I get paid quite well, uh, which is great. It's a good deal for me. And the flip side of that is that I don't need things from my clients. My my one request to my clients is don't hit me with the chair. But (laughs) other than that, it's no holds barred, right? People can come in and be as outrageous or as angry or as jealous or as whatever as they need to be. So it's intended as a radically open space where you can come in and talk about whatever it is you need to come and talk about. And then you will, during that conversation, articulate your best advice to yourself. And then I will tell you what you told me, probably in exactly your words. And at the end of that, I get to seem like a smart guy, which is a good deal for me and kind of ridiculous as well. Because inevitably, it's the client who's been clever and the client who's been tough and the client who's been brave and patient. And it's me who sits and watches, comfortable in the knowledge that I'm not in any control of the client most control i can exert is to like send you a reminder text message for your appointment or call you an ambulance if you really need one but that doesn't actually happen very often (laughs) and even when i'm working with folks who are acutely suicidal most of the time we don't call an ambulance because it's a problem and we should deal with it but if it's not an emergency that's a thing we'll manage between the two of us i want to go back to trying to debunk for people because what therapy sessions are because they're quite scary. I know back when I was at uni, I had a very failed experience with trying to go to a psychologist <laughs> oh because it scared the crap out of me. And yeah. I went and I sat there and I was really intimidated and they asked questions and I was confronted by the fact that I needed to like have tough feelings and I ran away and I didn't go back to that type of thing until recently and you know you had to cop most of my uh social therapy sessions so let's just debunk for people what is it that people get when they come to a therapist what what are those things you mentioned that um people can be selfish let's just unpack that a little bit be selfish so if you're turning up to therapy and you find it freaky try and say that out loud You may not be able to on the first attempt, but if you try multiple clinicians, that's totally fine, right? It's not a monogamous relationship. Everyone gets to see other people (laughs) and it's about meeting the needs of the client. And so if the space that the therapist creates works for you, fabulous. Do your job, do your work, get yourself better, take your own advice and get the hell out of there and go and have fun and adventures with your friends and family. Uh, And if you need to turn up and repetitively avoid well, use your example, Lisa, having hard feelings, uh, that's fine. (laughs) You do that until you're ready to. Weirdly enough, it taps back into that concept of the spider phobia, which is that we don't start with the spider. We start with the picture of the spider. And so if we need to dance around the edges of the underlying issue, that's what we do. And we do it until it stops being overwhelming because therapy should never be overwhelming. Different people have different beliefs around that, but this is my opinion. I think therapy should be challenging but it should be manageable. I think if you can't regulate in session because you're too emotional to do that, then I don't think you're making good progress on whatever your underlying thing is. I think that you need to be able to turn up to therapy, 
feel whatever, fear as an example, see that you're safe and then consolidate that as an experience where you thought one thing, safety, felt another thing, fear, and then nothing bad happened. Because it's really important that nothing bad happens in the therapy. Hard things, fine, right? It should be challenging. But if bad things are happening, then you should seek an alternative clinician really very quickly. At least go back to your general practitioner and have a conversation about how this is going and whether it's a good idea or not for you as a person. Um, okay, so I just want to continue to unpack what it is that people will expect, like practically speaking, when they go to a therapist. Yep. So it's a conversation, right? A therapy is a relationship. So you're going to turn up on the first session. You're going to meet a person. You should ask as many questions as you want to. Hopefully they explain what they do and how they do it to the degree that satisfies your curiosity. And again, let me start leaning in the direction of flagging that your emotions can be really useful for you and uh, listening to them can sometimes be deeply helpful. And so if you're curious, have question marks and ask questions as a result. And particularly in therapy, a space where building a sense of entitlement, building a sense of your own selfishness within therapy is a highly desirable trait as the client. And so turn up, meet this person, see whether you feel you can trust them to whatever degree today, and then start laying out the work that you want to do, right? If you're feeling that you drink too much coffee, let's pick coffee, but it could be anything else, or you get too angry or you're too depressed or you're too anxious or you have problems in a relationship with your partner or your boss or your child, uh, these are the good things to start introducing into that session. And of course, if there are any risks to you, If you self-harm, if you're suicidal, bring that up, please. Please bring that up in the first session or as quickly as you possibly can. Once it's on the table, it's manageable. And I tell you, if your clinician is not confident enough or competent enough to manage your suicidality, manage your self-harm, learn that early and find yourself the right person before you get too invested in someone who can't manage their own feelings well enough to hold your emotional space as well. You're squinting as I say that, Lisa. Does any of that make any sense at all? Yes, yes. So I am feeling, so I guess what I was looking for was what questions are they going to ask? But, I mean, I think back to your whole point is it's up to me to figure out what I want out of the conversation. Again, this is all sounding like very hard work. It is. It's real. Well, but that's the point, right? It's very hard work. And I tell you, as far as the style is concerned, it's really diverse, right? Like there are schools of therapy which say that you should sit down with some like template background, broad history gathering questions and ask those to like get a kind of sense of the lay of the land for the client psychologically and relationally, right? How are they, how are they feeling? How are their relationships? There is a kind of like a middle space where you ask the client how they're going and what they're there for. And the kind of the, like we start from that as like a more freewheeling conversation. Clearly that's where I lean because I'm pretty freewheeling anyway. And then there's the kind of other end of the spectrum where the clinician might not say anything at all. And it's about the client bringing all of the space, right? So a kind of classic, what's called a psychodynamic or blank slate approach uh, where, you know, some clinicians believe that leaving the space radically open 
for the client is really important so that they can do exactly the kind of thinking, Lisa, that you're doing in this moment. <laughs> Be like, oh, this feels like hard work. Like, yeah, yeah, great. And they love that. And so they will, with the, with the client's best intentions at heart, um, stay very quiet to leave the space very open for the client to fill. And the client figuring that out is part of that flavor of therapy. Yeah. Not the flavor that I practice. I have a tendency to use my words. Uh, yeah, I find too much subtext is a bit too complicated for me as far as the, the relationship is concerned. And again, that's okay, right? Like, so different clients will be attracted more or less to different flavors of therapy. And, you know, trying a few different things is no bad thing. Go and do some therapeutic speed dating. Call your clinicians if you're interested in who's who and the type of work that they do. You can talk to, client, uh, to therapists before you engage in therapy and get some sense of what they do and even the way that whether they're prepared to talk to you on the phone or what they the way they describe their practice that's likely to be quite informative and you'll build a sense of who's going to be a good fit for you as the client who let's remind you uh you are the one in charge you are the one with the answers you are the one doing the work as the client the clinician is not going to fix you uh and while you might rationally understand that even hearing lisa and i talk about it uh emotionally it can take some time to get over that because it's really disappointing to learn that with 150 years of science, we still haven't figured out how to force happiness into a person in a sustainable way. We can do it unsustainably. That heroin is great, I'm told. Uh, but it doesn't work, right? Take it for more than a day or three and, uh, and you got yourself a couple of problems there. Asterisk, asterisk. <laughs> heroin is not great. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> so, so what did we learn today, Lisa? Well, let's talk about the boundaries of confidentiality and also stay off the hammer. Yeah, yeah always, always a good chat. Uh, right. Uh, free Will and Tom. So psychologists or therapists um, are going to potentially, uh, depending on their flavour, their individual flavour and their variety, but they might ask me questions to help me unpack what I'm feeling and um, sort of, create my own solutions potentially. Um, yeah. They might also, you know, in future sessions, ask questions to try and see if I'm holding myself accountable. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, are you advice givers? I mean, we say no, but to be honest, I think that's rubbish. So we have what we like to call psychoeducation, which is a fancy word meaning advice. Now, it's advice grounded in science of some description, right? So we try not to pick just any random piece of nonsense that occurs in the mind of the clinician because you've got to keep in mind, we as a group of humans are just as mad as the clients. And as a result, we all believe some very strange things. I know I believe some very strange things and Lisa has been a witness to that. Um, and I definitely and so believe strange things. <laughs> And, and that's okay, right? And again, it's about separating the difference between me emphasizing the particular oddities that I might emphasize, as opposed then to looking at what the history of research in the well-being of humans tells us is a good idea. So, you know, when I encourage clients to like eat right and exercise and try to sleep well, all of that is advice in the kind of classic sense of the term. Uh, but when we, I think your question is kind of going after like, should I break up with my partner? Yeah, we're never going to answer that question. Yeah, right. Yeah, because that's <laughs> got to be the client's choice. Again, even if the client talks for 10 hours about the relationship and whether it's a good idea or not, that is still a tiny microcosm of the actual relationship that the client has, right? I tell you, if you live with your partner, you probably spend more than 10 hours with them in a weekend, 
And so how is even 10 hours of therapy going to give the therapist an informed enough sense as to whether staying in this relationship or going is a good idea? It needs to be the client's choice. And again, it comes back to that point of the client is the one who's in charge of the therapy. It's the clinician, it's the therapist's job to reflect the client's experience back to them. And of course, if somebody is coming to you and saying, should I leave my relationship? The real question is, why are you asking this question? And then the client will inevitably, oh, I know, look at me. I've paid some attention in the last, whatever, 15 years. Uh, Yeah, it's about waiting for the client to spell out their own advice. And there's lots of different ways to approach that question. And we also need to keep in mind, sometimes we frame questions that are impossible to solve. And it's because of the way we frame the question. If instead of should I leave my partner, we're asking, are there problems in my relationship? Then we're in a whole different kind of set of questions and the possibilities really open up. There's a lot of space between being broken up and being together. Uh, And even like the nature of relationship boundaries means that if you're having repetitive, unpleasant experiences in any relationship, could be romantic, could be family, could be work, uh, then you've probably got a problem there of some description. Maybe you can do something about it. Maybe you can't. All of this go for it. Well, I was going to say, don't don't give away all your secrets because we are going to talk about boundaries <laughs> in a future episode where we will really so unpack much. that. So much on boundaries. Uh, I think it's going to be um, week after next. But mm. so, okay, so I'm starting to get the feeling that as much as it's going to be a little bit of hard work, it's going to be worth it to, if I've got something that I've got as an issue that I want Aww. to change, right? So you're making me work. feel good. That's... You're making me feel good vibes on that. That's fine. gorgeous underplayment. <laughs> well, weirdly enough, it's kind of like the power of giving up, right? It's the power of giving up on all the more attractive alternatives, whether it's avoidance or having the therapist fix you. And once you're ready to give up on all of that and take the really obvious advice that you are in charge of your own life as much as anybody can be, and you as an individual are the person best placed to create change in your own life, then you'll get it done and you'll see what the therapist is for. The therapist is there to care about you and to feed your own best advice back to you, to give you a space where you can experiment with all the weird and wonderful stuff in your head and to reflect to you what sounds like rubbish and what sounds like your best authentic advice. Ooh, I feel like doing a power pose. That was a great catch up, Tom. That was brilliant. Okay, so that was a great summary. So in which case, um, are these chats confidential? What do you mean when you guys talk about informed consent and therapeutic relationships? Oh, nice. That's very good. That reads just like the list of dot points I sent you in advance of this conversation. Uh, Confidentiality. Firstly, most people walking into therapy assume that it's like 100% confidential because that's what we see in American television programs. So hear really clearly that the confidentiality within therapy changes depending on where you're geographically located in the world. Mm-hmm. So I'll speak to the Australian context because that's where my expertise lies. I don't know exactly what the laws are in America or the UK or New Zealand. Uh, but in Australia, therapy is confidential by default So we protect as much confidentiality as we can, as often as we can. Now, an important point is if you're seeing a therapist who works with other therapists, right, or works in a broader healthcare setting, then you're probably going to find that your confidentiality sits within the building rather than with your therapist as a specific individual. 
And that's really important when you think about whether, yeah, you're making a disturbed face in this moment. Yeah, this yeah. Moment. What about really Zoom? Should. I'm so confused right now. Right. Well, not just that. What if you've got family members who are seeing other therapists in the same building? Yeah, bombshell. And so, again, these are the questions you want to ask in advance. So therapists working in the same agency, in the same organization, will often talk with each other for in the most respectful and supportive fashion, right? It's to be professional. It's to make sure that they basically don't go crazy and they do a good job for you, but they'll work together as a team. And there's some amazing advantages to that. But you want to go into therapy knowing exactly what the deal is. Now, in my setting, it's easy because I work for me and it's only me, but I might expand my practice one day. And so if I'm taking, say, one person in a romantic relationship and a colleague is taking another person in a romantic relationship, for me, it's really important that both of those people know exactly how much information is going to be shared about each other. Importantly, there should always be respect and professionalism when it comes to sharing information about clients. We don't do gossip as far as treating client information is concerned. And if you're getting the vibe that that is happening within your therapeutic practice, like the the clinician that you're seeing has a kind of gossipy feel to them, I would be concerned about that. And I think you should be asking yourself whether that's the space that you're going to receive effective support. How open can you be if you suspect that your information is being taken out to the lunchroom afterwards and laughed about, that would be a very distressing thing. It was a vibe, I tell you, back in the kind of 80s and 90s before clients uh, gained access to their files, which is a thing in Australia. We have what's called freedom of information laws. Yeah, there's some bad stuff turned up in the files uh, of people's like psych inpatient unit files and whatnot. Um, And the culture of the whole profession has changed enormously in the last couple of decades, which is great. I think it's a really good change. And just because it's hard to have your work exposed, um, particularly to the client, doesn't mean that it's a bad thing as far as the quality of care is concerned. Uh, Now, importantly, right, so that's multiple people in a building, still confidential by default. Uh, There are some limits to confidentiality in the Australian setting. So first of all, if you want your therapist to talk to somebody else, right? You need them to call your school or talk to a parent or work with your general practitioner, for example. That's fine. We call it a breach of confidentiality, but really it's about you getting your professionals to work together in an effective way. And it's a really good idea, right? If I'm, uh, if I've got a client who's working with a psychiatrist, it's really helpful for us to talk together so that apart from anything else, if you're dealing with your spider phobia, um, as you start to really crack through that work and you're holding my jar of spiders and feeling pleased about that, you could probably come down on your anxiolytic, on your anti-anxiety medication. Uh, and I need to know when you're coming down a medication, because you'll be more afraid and it will make sense of that situation when you find spiders harder that day. Go for it. So just a quick question. What's the difference between a psychologist and a psychiatrist? That's an excellent point. So a psychiatrist is a medical doctor, right? They can deal with an ingrown toenail or give you a flu shot. Uh, And the specialization of a psychiatrist is mental health in the same way that some medical doctors specialize in surgery or being an ear, nose and throat person. Some of them go and become psychiatrists. Uh, So they are medical doctors who can work in a mental health context, whereas a psychologist is a scientist, right? So I have a bachelor's degree in behavioral science and then a master's degree in sitting still and being quiet and listening. And we're scientists who know how to listen to people, basically. So we both approach very similar work from quite different 
perspectives. And there's, those aren't the only two options, right? Mental health social workers, there are fla- uh, different flavors of counselors and therapists. This is one of the reasons why there's such a diversity within the trade. And I would say that's tremendously to our, to our benefit as far as the client experience is concerned. Importantly, psychologists can't prescribe medication, right? We don't have the underlying physiology training. Uh, in some countries, uh, some psychologists have limited prescriber rights, uh, but in Australia, it's a hard no. And to be honest, I don't want them. Uh, like I don't, <laughs> I was joking with a client earlier today. I kind of struggle to tell you the difference between the liver and the kidneys. Uh, and that's because the last time I read a book on physiology, it was in primary school, right? <laughs> like in my mind, the body is full of different colored organs like everything is in a primary color and has a big thick black line around it because that's my sophisticated knowledge of the body right i can tell you huge amounts about the brain and the nervous system uh, but as far as like medications impact on i don't know cartilage i don't i don't know i just don't know how these things come together And so here that while at times you might want to ask questions of your psychologist about medication and always feel free to ask, right? The worst thing that they'll do is say, oh, have a chat to your doctor about it. I'm just not sure along that line. Well, anyway, freewheeling it back uh, from how to talk meds to to confidentiality. So firstly, you can release confidentiality, right? You can get your professionals to work with each other or talk to anyone you need them to talk to. They don't have to do that, FYI. So just because you tell your psychologist to have a conversation doesn't mean they're necessarily going to. And that pops up most regularly when you have lawyers in your life and you want psychologists to do that job for you. Because there's a difference between providing confidential therapy and providing a non-confidential assessment for court. So I particularly see this in family court cases, right? I work with kids and grown-ups, uh, and a lot of the parents will be like, look, you clearly know the kid better than any assessor is going to, so how about you punch up the report? Like, oh, no, 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 because firstly, I haven't been asking the questions you want answered, and secondly, you're going to ruin this child's experience of therapy if I take what was meant to be kept very secret and I splash that all over the courtroom. And so, again tool for the job, right? If you need a non-confidential assessment, that service is available. So go and get it uh, and try not to muddy the waters of your therapy by reducing your trust in your clinician because you asked them to speak to your lawyer. That's a terrible idea. Uh, go for it. But, so for example, it's it comes back to asking questions and making sure that you're finding the therapist you need at the start. So if, for yeah. example, you're going through a stress-related work safe type of situation and you if you know that on your way in you can at least have that conversation to start with and ask if the therapist is going to be comfortable with doing you know that mountain of paperwork or whether that's not something they have capacity for or they feel comfortable for so it sounds like it's about you know asking the questions as soon as you know that they're available and being up front early and finding the person you need yeah yeah very much so. Um, and then other reasons why we breach confidentiality. So we breach confidentiality for emergencies. So in Australia, if we have to call triple zero, if you need a vehicle with a siren on the top, then we're going to do that. Now, good practice would tell us that we'll ask first, right? We'll try and give, again, the client as much freedom and responsibility as possible to take control. I would always prefer that clients call their own ambulances rather than having me call them. But if the client chooses for me to call the ambulance, that's fine. And if the client doesn't choose to call the ambulance, even though they need one, 
I'm going to make that phone call anyway. And that's not a great day for anybody, but that's the professional ethics, right? We are more in favor of preventing suicide and homicide and serious injury than we are in maintaining the quality of the relationship. So we prioritize life. Uh, in my specific flavor of therapy, so I'm what's called a DBT clinician, dialectical behavioral uh, therapy clinician. Uh, the mantra around that is it's hard to get better if you're dead. And so <laughs> that's our kind of touchstone on that. There's a brutal logic to it. Uh, psychologists in Australia are required to report to child protective services if a child is the victim of physical or sexual abuse. So interestingly, uh, we're not required at this stage uh, to report emotional abuse and different forms of neglect, potentially. A lot of psychologists will anyway, uh, and again, seek clarity if this is a question you've got, right? So these are the minimum rules that psychologists have to follow. You're not allowed to just keep uh, you know, the, the history of abuse of a child under your hat uh, if you've been told it. Um, so you must report in those circumstances. It's a crime not to, in fact, uh, particularly sexual abuse in the state of Victoria where I live. Um, but we do need to work with child protective services much in the way that teachers do, right? The, basically, the boundaries are the same for teachers as they are for psychologists along that line. Uh, and then the the one, the, the kind of the obscure reasons that generally don't arise or people don't really care about uh, is that psychologists can be subpoenaed to court. If you don't know what a subpoena is, you should watch more Law and Order. It's an excellent show. Uh, and a subpoena is a letter written by a lawyer that requires someone to turn up in court and act as a witness. Uh, and in the state of Victoria, if you're subpoenaed into court, you do not have the right to remain silent. Uh, and if you attempt to engage that, uh, then you can be found in contempt of court and placed in jail for anything up to 30 days. Uh, and so while I love my clients, I don't love them that much. I'm not going to jail for them. <laughs> and so it's a thing, again, that I tell clients uh, that uh, if there's a possibility of subpoena in their lives, they should be aware that the things they tell me could end up in a court of law. Um, and that comes to kind of the point around informed consent, right? You should, your clients should know what the service is, what the boundaries and, and ends of it are, and which parts are going to interact with your life. So ask as many questions as you need to. And I don't expect people to remember everything I tell them in the first session. And I give folks a conf uh, consent form, uh, which I'm sure almost none of them read. Uh, so I always try and hit the highlights of that. And then as issues arise within therapy, I try and remind people, preferably in advance, uh, of the thing occurring, the disclosure occurring, so that people know what the consequences of the conversation are going to be. Occasionally, I'm caught off guard, right? Occasionally, I'm surprised, and then I'm in an awkward situation. But that's why they pay me, you know? Like, if it was all just sitting and encouraging people to take their own advice and watching them get better, uh, then this would be a much easier job than it can be at times. Uh, so, yeah, the hard chat, Tough Talking Tuesday, is, uh, is an important part of what I do for a living. Uh, last obscure breach of confidentiality is what's called supervision. So uh, I mentioned it briefly before. Uh, so all psychologists in Australia are required 
to engage in supervision. I have to do 10 hours a year uh, with another clinician who, again, watches me and uh, helps me not go mad and hopefully encourages me to do a good job. Uh, now, in my practice, that's conducted anonymously. So I'm not anonymous to the, my supervisor. <laughs> she knows exactly who I am. I have to pay her apart from anything else. Uh, but we never discuss the client's names. We don't do identifying detail because that's not the thing I'm there to work on. The thing I'm there to work on is what does my reaction mean or what is the research in this area? Stuff along those lines. And again, depending on the setting, uh, that relationship can look a bit, a bit different. In my last gig, when I was a salaried employee, I was both the line manager and supervisor for a whole series of clinicians. And so I had kind of ultimate oversight for several hundred clients and I had the detail, right? That's how I do some work for a university. Uh, I'm in salaried in there. I have the detail of those clients and that's important because those are student psychologists and so I need to watch video of them doing the therapy apart from anything else. And again, you can consent to any of this as long as you know it's happening, right? As long as you're comfortable with the structure of the therapy service you're going to, then you can get some great work done and yeah, know what you know what you need to know going in would be the thing I would really encourage for any client. Because again, you're in charge. I'll say it like one million times if I have to. <laughs> well, to be honest, um, confidentiality uh, had a lot more in it than I thought it would. But um, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Therapeutic relationships. Talk so, to me about this. The thing about therapy is because we set these like crazy boundaries around it so that the client can have insane hard conversations, right? We create a space where people can talk about literally anything. The awful, monstrous, terrifying thoughts inside their heads, if need be. And the clinician is going to set their own needs aside for 50 minutes at a time for as long as it takes it's hard to be anything other than the therapist in that context that for instance is the reason why you lisa have never been in therapy with me right <laughs> we have sat and consumed a variety of beverages and discussed your life and mine at different points but that's friendship it's different and while it is warm and loving uh it is not <laughs> like confidential apart from anything else, I don't get paid for it. Uh, <laughs> and I'm not selfless when I'm with you. Like I'm interested in your life and you're interested in mine. It's a reciprocal relationship. Mm -hmm. Whereas in therapy, it's all about the client, right? The only things we need for the clinician are safety and payment. And then the rest is the client's emotional space. And so that's why I always kind of flag for clients. Look, I'm not going to tell you my birthday and I'm not turning up for Christmas. And that will give the client the freedom to do whatever they need to do in therapy. And that sounds like a good deal. And it sounds like there's a great logic there. And there is, but there's a downside, right? Which is that you might have an amazing connection with your clinician and you're never going to know them outside of that space. And so while like I would say my clients are some of the people that know me the best in the world, particularly the ones I work long-term with. Like they have a deep understanding of my personality and they don't know what my birthday is or where I live or like how many kids I have or the names of those kids because I keep all of that information to myself because I don't want to contaminate the therapeutic space with my needs. And I think introducing a lot of your own stuff into therapy can quietly transition your relationship from therapy to friendship 
And I think that's a great way of tanking therapy is to turn it quietly into friendship, even though it can be a deeply attractive thing for everybody, right? I, all my clients are amazing people. Uh, and there's totally versions of reality where we can be close friends and it's not going to happen because that's what therapy's for, right? Again, we set aside the therapeutic space to be therapy and only therapy so you can get your goddamn work done and get out, get out as quickly as you can. I think it's one of the biggest, like in my opinion, one of the biggest plugs for therapy is that it is such a great selfish space where you can just focus on yourself. A little bit weird to start with, you know, I reckon, because you're used to feeling obliged to ask questions back and, Mm -hmm. you know, like reflect what the other person is doing in a conversation and um, try and see if you can meet their needs. And then finally, after a few sessions, you realise, oh, no, I can talk all about me and we can sort out all my problems and I don't have to ask you and I don't have to worry about your feelings. And this is amazing. Like, as someone who sometimes has a lot of opinions and some strong opinions, (laughs) like, they're all okay. It's all, you know, nothing is a problem and I can use all my words and say all the things or not say things and it's also okay as well. So, yeah, big plug for therapy. Oh, and even just a strong pattern of taking care of other people, right? And if you're taking mm. care of other people, you're not leaving the space for yourself. Uh, and so, yeah, by all means, you'll come in and worry about the therapist. But then if they're like able to pick that up, they'll push back on you for that. And they'll encourage you back into that selfish space. And you have that experience like you've had where you might ask them how they are for the first several sessions. And when they tell you exactly the same thing every time, yeah. you realize pretty quickly, there's no point in asking because good. the sessions are all about you. Yeah. Yeah. Therapist has always got to be good enough, right? If you're not if you're not doing well enough, you're not going to go to work. That's the reflection, right? Like live happy in the knowledge as the client is that while the clinician isn't going to come to you for support, like they're not, they're not going to come to you for support. They must go to other people and they must take good enough care of themselves. And so there's all this stuff that you'll be blind to. And one of the challenges and great things about therapy is letting yourself be blind to it, trusting that the clinician is going to take care of themselves with this their support network and that you really are there to focus on you and own the work. Okay, so wrapping up this week, Tom, what is it that you want all us crazy people out there to know about therapy? All right, therapy is all about you. It's not about the therapist. It's all about you as the client. It is mostly confidential, but there are some limits to that. And you should start with your general practitioner to discuss the options. So there is funding available. If the GP refers to different types of clinicians doing different types of work, go and have a longer conversation with the person who does your flu shot. Amazing. Next week, we are going to have the joy of hearing Tom's sex talk. Uh, So this is going to be (laughs) hilarious. Please come back for that. Thanks to everyone for joining us for All People Are Crazy. Thanks so much, everybody. And remember to find us on whatever social media Lisa sets up for us. And keep in mind that I'm not going to pay any attention to that whatsoever. So please don't ask any healthcare questions in that space. Bye, everybody. Bye, Tom. All People Are Crazy is a production of The Therapy People. We would appreciate your five-star review on the podcast platform of your choice. Why not visit us at allpeoplearecrazy.com.au or on Instagram or Facebook. If you're a psychologist interested in setting up private practice, why not visit therapypeople.com.au to see whether we can be of assistance.